We're discussing Fraunhofer diffraction today. So first order of business will be to describe what that means. You've probably heard of diffraction. You may or may not have heard it described as Fraunhofer diffraction. Um, and we'll use our um, we'll use Huygens principle, which can be used to describe Fraunhofer diffraction, to derive the diffraction pattern of a slit in one dimension. We'll talk about a slit and a hole in two dimensions. We'll use the results for calculating the diffraction pattern of a hole to describe the criteria for when two objects are resolvable by an optical system. And we'll generalize our analysis from a single slit to multiple slits and introduce um, some Fourier principles like convolution and uh, talk a little bit more about how Fourier transforms can be used to analyze properties of, optic, of optical systems. Uh, we probably won't get through all this today. This is sort of what we'll be doing in the next two to three lectures. So diffraction means to break apart from Latin. And I guess 400 years now, 350 years, that it's been known light does not travel just in rays and does not obey the picture of geometrical optics that we have of a bunch of rays traveling in straight lines. So Grimaldi was the first to realize this. Uh, what he noticed is that light traveling by an aperture or by an obstacle would not perfectly produce uh, a shadow of that obstacle with hard edges, but the edges would have some blurriness to them. Uh, you can see this. If you look at the edge of a shadow, this shadow that I'm projecting here has some blurriness due to the fact that the light is not parallel. This isn't actually a good example, but the result is very similar to what you'd see if you hold the ruler stick up to the sunlight and you look at the shadow. Or if you look at the shadow of the leaves in a tree, you don't see leaf-shaped shadows. You see basically uh, circles. Again, there's an effect there due to the finite extent of the sun as well. Um, but this effect of diffraction can also be seen. Then a couple other uh, people who are relevant for our discussion is Augustine Fresnel, who calculated a general principle or a general method for determining where the bright and dark fringes from a diffraction pattern would occur. And then Joseph Fraunhofer, who investigated Fresnel diffraction in the limit of far-field uh, far sources and observers. Principally, he observed the diffraction pattern of uh, things illuminated from the sun. And his type of analysis, where your object and image are far from the diffracting aperture, gives a simplified uh, analysis. So the mathematics of Fraunhofer diffraction pictured here, where you have plane waves coming in and diffracting from an aperture, is much easier to analyze than the case where you have curved waves or curved wave fronts diffracting from an aperture. Okay, so we're going to restrict our analysis to Fraunhofer diffraction. That means plane waves. And that means we either have to have 
our source infinitely far away, or some sort of collimated source, and our observer infinitely far away, or you can have a source and an observer, and you can collimate the light with a lens. So if a lens is placed one focal length away from a light source, it collimates the light. And viewed through the lens, the source appears to be infinitely far away. So you can then have a, an aperture here, which blocks some of the light. So we have plane waves coming in, plane waves going out. And then another lens after the aperture that would focus the light onto a screen. So your observer can be over here one focal length away from a lens at the output. And the plane waves that are coming out of this diffraction pattern get imaged to points. Our analysis will assume that the space through which the light propagates in the plane of this aperture can be thought of as a bunch of point sources. Okay? And each of those point sources will treat as, well, as a point source that radiates spherical waves. And at some point over here where the observer is, which we'll call point P, we will look at the contribution of the electric field due to each of those point sources. Now, If we ask how the distance from each point source varies as we go across this aperture, if we're infinitely far away, that variation is linear. Whereas if we're close, it's, it's not a linear relationship. Okay? And so whether or not that's a linear relationship, greatly it, if it is a linear relationship, it greatly simplifies the mathematics. Okay, so when we do the analysis, we'll see that. Okay, and we'll also describe the criteria for when you can consider something far enough away that Fraunhofer diffraction is the appropriate way to treat it and when you can't make that assumption. Okay, so to start with, let's look at a picture, literally. It's a picture of the Christmas tree that was in my front yard last, summer, last uh, winter, last Christmas. And what do you notice about the picture? There's a difference, there's some sort of difference from the left side to the right side. I didn't do any image editing. This is just a picture I took with my still camera. What could cause that? I didn't put any special filter on the camera. Nope, that's a single picture. Um, so first let's zoom in here, this pattern is a diffraction pattern. We'll calculate that, that pattern today. Gregory? The tree is basically symmetric. The lights are distributed randomly. I didn't do anything special to the tree. 
Okay, let me turn on the flash to the camera. There's, there's a uh, chiffon curtain that's pulled over half of the window. Okay. That curtain has a very tight weave to it, and the light is diffracting from the, basically the space between the threads and the curtain and producing that diffraction pattern. So you can do things like measure that diffraction pattern and determine how many threads per inch that curtain has. So we'll see how to do that today. <laughs> the stuff's all around us, so sometimes it's just a matter of finding it. Okay, so let's try to understand this mathematically. We're going to use Huygens' principle. Remember, Huygens' principle said that you can treat a wavefront as if it were a bunch of spherical point sources. And you can add up the contribution from each of those point sources at a point. The general description of diffraction, Fresnel diffraction, which doesn't require the object and point and observer be infinitely far apart, um, uses what's called the Kirchhoff integral theorem, which is beyond the scope of this course. Um, but when the waves you're interested in are plane waves, this reduces to Huygens principle. Okay, so we'll use Huygens principle. Um, I'll try to point out a couple deficiencies in Huygens principle. And uh, we'll see what it's useful for and what it's not useful for. Okay, so Huygens principle says, again, that if we have, for example, a slit, so this dark black line represents some opaque obstruction in the path of a plane wave, and there's a slit cut out from it. So this region right here will allow the light to transmit, just a hole cut in the obstruction. And we'll analyze the situation in one dimension. Then we can look at all these different little point sources. And we need to understand a little bit about the geometry here. Um, the width of this slit is going to be important. If the slit is infinitely large, what do you expect the plane waves to do as they pass that aperture? They'll just stay plane waves, right? We're not going to see anything special. Um, what if the slit is infinite, infinitely small, or the, the, ap the slit is infinitesimally small, I guess I should say? What do you think would happen? It'll act like a point source. The point that the light transmits through will produce spherical waves that radiate, radiate outwards. Okay, so the slit width is important. We'll call it B. It'll be the full width. We'll define the optical axis as being the line that, that uh, is normal to this aperture and cuts through the center. And we'll consider what's happening over here at a point P that's off axis. And so I've drawn a bunch of spherical wavefronts that are supposed to represent the spherical wavefronts coming from, say, these four little point sources. And if we just calculate the phase of all the different wavefronts, we can add up the phases as if they're interfering. In Fresnel diffraction, we'd also have to consider the fact that the amplitude of these different wavefronts could, could vary appreciably. If we're infinitely far away from this slit, then the variation in distance from this point to this little source and to this little source can be considered identical. So the 1 over r decrease in amplitude is not going to vary appreciably across these wavefronts. If we're measuring at a point right here, then the point sources 
that are near the axis are going to contribute more strongly than the point sources that are far away. And that's a case where we couldn't make that assumption. Now, one of the uh, deficiencies of Huygens' formulation is that if these are all point sources, they might add up constructively over here at some point to produce a forward propagating wave. But they should also be able to add up, just due to symmetry, constructively back here to produce a backwards going wave. And we don't see that. We don't see light hitting an aperture and reflecting. So the Kirchhoff integral theorem accounts for this by including what's called an obliquity factor, which is just a weighting of the strength of the wavefronts so that it's weighted most strongly when it's forward going and has a weighting of zero in the backward direction. Okay, so anyways, let's get on with the geometry that we're interested in. And we'll consider at this point P a couple different rays, one coming from a point on the optical axis. We'll call that a distance, a distance R0. And despite the fact that this diagram is drawn to fit on the paper, we're going to let R0 be large. Large such that all the rays from any point within this slit coming to point P can be considered to be parallel. Okay, or the difference in angle between these, this opening angle here, is infinitesimally small. Okay, so what that says is this R0 is approximately the same as this, R, as this distance. And if we consider a wavefront produced by this ray right here, that wavefront should be perpendicular to that ray. I've drawn that in green. And then if I consider a wavefront that's also perpendicular to that ray drawn at the aperture, then the point over here where it intersects this other ray produces a triangle, an isosceles triangle here, where this distance is the same as this distance. Okay, because if this, is perp if this is 90 degrees and these rays are parallel, this is 90 degrees. So it's an isosceles triangle that has an infinitely long, I guess, what, infinitely tall height and an infinitely narrow base relative to the height. So the reason that's useful is because then it lets us break this ray into two, par two parts, one that has uh, a length r0 and an additional length delta r, which is some additional contribution or additional path length that the light has to travel when it comes from this point instead of from that point. Okay, that delta r is small. It's not going to affect the amplitude of the light, but it will have an appreciable effect on the phase. Okay, so let's write the contribution to the electric field at point P from this source up here. I'll call that uh, E sub S, a source that has a field magnitude E sub S. Okay, so if the electric field at this plane is a plane wave has an amplitude of E sub S, then this little point source has an amplitude of E sub s that decays as 1 over r. 
Okay, so I'll write that as e sub s times the linear size of that point source. So if I call the position along the slit y prime, then the size will be dy prime. So I have es times dy prime. And it decays as 1 over r. So the amplitude decreases as you get further away. The distance away we are is r naught plus delta r. And I said this delta r down here is going to be insignificant in the denominator. And then it acquires a phase shift as it propagates. So we can write that as e to the i times the phase shift. So the phase shift is just k times the distance it propagates. And the distance it propagates is r naught plus delta r. And it varies in time, so I'll have a minus omega t there. Okay, so this is due to traveling from the aperture to the point, and this is due to the 1 over r decay of the field. Now, this delta r will ignore because it doesn't have a significant contribution to the amplitude. This delta r we're not going to ignore because it gets multiplied by k, which is a large number. It's 2 pi over lambda. Another way of saying that is if, if delta r is just a fraction of a wavelength, it can appreciably change the phase, but it's not going to appreciably change the amplitude. Okay, so we, we don't just blanketly ignore it. We just pick and choose the places where it's important and the places where it's not. And in fact, we can write delta r in terms of the height y prime. We have a little triangle here where this height is y prime. This height is also, this leg is also y prime. This is again, um, this is a similar triangle to this triangle. And so this angle between the wavefront and the mask is theta, just like the angle between uh, the normal and this ray is theta. And so this distance delta r is y prime times sine of theta. So clearly when theta equals 0, delta r is 0. And when y prime is 0, delta r is 0. So delta r is defined as the extra distance that the light has to travel relative to the ray that comes from on axis. So if y prime is 0, you're on axis. The extra distance is 0. Okay, now we can plug this in. We can get rid of the delta r in the denominator. And we have an expression that we can then integrate over y prime. Okay, so we have an expression which now has a dependence on y prime and theta. Theta is determined by where this point is off axis. And y prime is a quantity that depends on where the source is. So if we integrate over all the sources, we'll get the total electric field at point P. Theta is constant. Yes. So theta is constant, and it's a function of the point that we observe at. So let's do the integral. And we only need to integrate from the bottom of the slit to the top of the slit, because no light gets passed 
elsewhere. So we integrate from minus b over 2 to plus b over 2. And we only need to keep terms that depend on y prime inside the integral. So the amplitude factor and the, the wave oscillations, e to the minus kr0 minus omega t, come outside. And then the phase that depends on y prime stays on the inside, and we have to integrate that. Okay, so there's a few steps to integrating this. Um, so we have something that looks like e to the ax dx. Right, so the integral of that is 1 over a times e to the ax. Okay, so we have 1 over the constant of the y prime. So that's ik sine theta times e to the ik y prime sine theta. And we integrate that from minus b over 2 to b over 2. So plugging in our first limit of integration gives us a quantity in the numerator or in this uh, argument. And then when we plug in uh, the minus b over 2 limit, we have to subtract the value with the minus b over 2 in the argument. And so I can write this expression, as I've done here, where I've got the two limits of integration, the difference between those two, and I've put a 2i in the denominator here. So one of that i came from right there. The 2 I just put in and put a 2 in the numerator out there. And the reason I did that is so that this term in parentheses can be related to sine of kb over 2 sine theta. So I have e to the i something minus e to the minus i something over 2i. And that's sine of something. Okay, so that's the simplification I make here on the next line. Just taking this term in parentheses and writing it as the sine of this argument. Now, I've done a couple other things. I've multiplied this denominator by b, and then I had to multiply the numerator by b as well. And the reason I did that is it makes this term right here 1 over this argument of the sine. And so this quantity here, this amplitude times this sine, this is sine x over x. We call that the sinc function. We saw that with the Fourier analysis. So I'll write this expression as sinc kb over 2 sine theta. And that gives me the electric field at point P. It has some amplitude that depends on the strength of the source illuminating the slit and how far away I am from the slit, as you'd expect. It has a phase which is oscillating in time and has oscillated as the light has propagated a distance r naught to the observer. And then it's got a contribution to the amplitude that's going to vary depending on where the observer is. So remember, I said the observer was down here to point P. And now I'm defining that location in terms of its angle and its distance. So I'm using polar coordinates to describe where that observer is. So this is an expression that depends on r naught and theta. 
And it has this particular relationship between the observer's position and the amplitude of the field. As the angle the observer views this from changes, the value for the electric field is going to uh, fluctuate by this sink function. We'll look at that sink function on the next slide. But we're typically not able to measure the electric field directly. Rather, we look at the irradiance pattern. And so let's take this quantity and square it. And the source electric field squared is proportional to the source irradiance. So I'll call that the source irradiance. And whatever constants of proportionality I need to put in to relate irradiance to field squared will cancel in this, in this relationship then. And I can say that the irradiance at point P is related to the irradiance at the source times b over r naught squared. Okay, so the b squared term, someone remind me what b is? Slit width. So why should the irradiance that I observe at point P depend on the slit width? Yeah, so this is just telling me how much light gets through. Uh, and then 1 over r naught is the uh, power decreasing as 1 over r naught as I get further away. And then I have this sink function squared. And so the argument of the sink function I typically write as some parameter. The book uses beta. So we'll let beta equal kb over 2 sine theta. Then this amplitude we can write as i naught, which is the value of the irradiance at point p if p is on axis. So if theta equals 0, beta equals 0, sinc of 0 is 1, and the irradiance on axis, then we'll define as I naught. Mark? Um, that's Is is the irradiance at the slit? Yes. And we're assuming it's uniform across the slit. And you assume that the source is near the slit? or No, that it's infinitely far so away. So you lose a little bit of amplitude from the source to the slit? Well, you just, we don't really worry about how much power is coming out of the source. We only measure or define the irradiance at the slit. Um, in practice, if you're doing this using lasers, lasers are collimated light sources. So they behave as a point source infinitely far away if it's collimated. And whatever the irradiance is of the laser, that would be the irradiance at the slit because it's not changing significantly if it's, if it's a collimated beam. OK, so let's look at this uh, sinc function and the sinc squared function. Um, here they are plotted as a function of beta. So the solid line is uh, sinc beta. And then the dotted line is sinc squared, so it's always positive. So the zero crossings of sinc occur, remember it's sine beta over beta. So whenever sine beta is equal to zero, there's a zero crossing. So that occurs at pi, 2 pi, 3 pi. That is except for at beta equals zero, because then you have zero over zero. And it's, uh, you have to use Lahapital's rule to evaluate that. It evaluates to 1. OK, so uh, the zero crossings of sinc squared also occur at pi, 2 pi, 3 pi. And evidently, this is what the diffraction pattern of the slit would look like, this dotted line, as a function of uh, the angle, at least as a function of the sine of the angle that you view it from. So if we have some geometry where we're not infinitely far away, but we're a long distance away, 
we'll define what I mean by long in a minute. Um, let's call that distance L and let's call our point P. We'll let it be at a height of Y. Then if we're far away such that this angle is small, then the angle, the angle is approximately equal to the tangent, which is approximately equal to the sine, which is, is equal to the sine, is equal to the tangent, is equal to y over l. So I will let sine theta equal y over l. Then I can say that beta is kby over 2l. And the irradiance pattern will have a 0 every time that equals some integer multiple of pi where the integer is not 0. So I can solve for the position of the minima. So let me write that out. And if I want this to equal some integer multiple of pi, at a particular height, they can find out what that height is. And if I make the substitution that k is 2 pi over lambda, then these 2 pi's cancel out. And I get the height of the nth minimum is at ml lambda over b. ml lambda over b. Gregory? Okay. Since gamma rays have much shorter wavelengths, this approximation, the error in this approximation will matter more? If the wavelength is very small, the size of this slit needs to be correspondingly smaller. So what we'll see is, what's important is how wide this slit is in terms of the number of wavelengths. Um, so we'll wait till we get to the, uh, the criteria for differentiating far field from near field. And when we do that, we can then look at how it scales with wavelength. This approximation that we're making here is just assuming a small angle. So that actually doesn't matter. The wavelength isn't so important here. It's just saying that this angle is approximately equal to its sine. So that's a pretty straightforward to find where the minima of the diffraction pattern are. The maxima are a little harder to find. Um, at first glance, it might appear that they're halfway in between the minima. Uh, but that's not quite true. Um, the reason is the maxima occur where this, this function sine beta over beta have an ex extremum. So where the solid line has a minimum or a maximum, that's where the irradiance will be a max. Right? And this function looks like sine beta over beta. So its zeros are where sine beta equals zero. But its maxima are not where sine beta is a maxima. It's where sine beta over beta is a maxima. So this term in the denominator sort of weights it um, such that the maxima get shifted in a little bit. 
you can, of course, determine mathematically where those occur by differentiating the expression. This is what you get. You set that equal to 0. The numerator needs to be 0. And that comes up with the transcendental equation beta equals tangent beta. So you can solve that for the values of beta where the interference pattern is a maxima. And pretty much you have to use lookup tables or numerical methods to solve that. Okay, so let's just look at how adding a lens to the system affects our um, expressions for where the maxima and minima are. So if we imagine our observer at point P is infinitely far away, and I said the effect of that is that all the rays coming from the source that are going to the observer are parallel. And so if they're parallel, then I can put in a lens and it will focus those rays to a point one focal length away, by definition of what the focal length of a lens is. And so rays that are traveling at an angle of theta, as shown here, will focus down here. But rays that are traveling at a different angle will focus to a different point. So we can map the angular spread onto a spatial spread. And to do that, it's easiest just to look at one set of rays. Consider a ray like this one that goes through the center of the lens. Then it's traveling at an angle theta relative to the optical axis. The image, the point, is uh, focused over here one focal length away. And so the height of that image, or of that point, is y. And y over this distance, which is one focal length, is the arctangent of theta. And again, if we constrain ourselves to small angles, tangent is approximately the same as the angle. And so our expression. That's wrong. Let's see. Yeah, that didn't make the slide. Um, so if theta is y over f, whereas before we said theta was y over l. Right? So if we just replace l with f in our expression, We get the location of those points when imaged onto a, a slit. Okay, so if we don't want to use a lens, in order for the Fraunhofer diffraction calculations to be valid, or to be, uh, for the approximations to be valid, we need to observe very far away. Um, and the further away we observe from, the better the approximations become. If we just simply put a lens in and then observe the interference pattern at the focal plane of the lens, then our approximations become, uh, become completely valid. They become exact. And we'll see the exact far field diffraction pattern at this plane. Okay. So let's, let's 
turn this into practice. Let's do an example. A slit is illuminated by a plane wave a green, of green light, 500 nanometers, at normal incidence. Uh, the diffraction pattern on a wall 10 meters away has the first minima separated by 5 centimeters. What is the slit width? Okay, so this is exactly the diagram that we showed. We have a slit. It's illuminated by green light. Plane waves, normal to the surface. It's diffraction pattern. It's going to look like this. That's uh, the intensity measured at as a function of uh, height. It's going to look like I naught times sinc squared of beta, where beta was kb over 2 sine theta. And sine theta is going to be approximately y over l. So I can just use the results that I had derived before, that the minima, the nth minima, occurs at L lambda over B. That's just setting the argument of the sinc function equal to pi. And so it says the first minima are separated by 5 centimeters. So what are the values of m for the first minima? So there's two, it's plural, right? There's two minima, right? So there's, this is the first minima, and that's the other, the first minima in the other direction. So one of these we'll call plus one, and the other one we'll call minus one. Okay. So an easy mistake to make is to assume we're going from zero to one. We're going from minus one to plus one. So delta y is going to be 2L lambda over B. Or let me write it out explicitly. It's, it's from plus 1 L lambda over B minus negative 1 L lambda over B. And I'm told that's 5 centimeters. Okay, so calculating the slit width is just a matter of solving for B. I know L and I know lambda. Okay, so as long as I take care to make all the units consistent. I can see this has dimensions of length. It's a length squared over a length. So I get a length. And for these numbers, I get a length of 200 microns. So this is a very easy way to measure the length of something very small. Right? You can take a, if you had something that was 200 micrometers thick, it would be very difficult to measure that using calipers or a meter stick or some of the more conventional methods we have for measuring length. 
But using the diffraction pattern, if you know the wavelength of the light, all that you need to measure are some things that are much easier to observe, like the distance to the screen, 10 meters, a width of 5 centimeters, and then you can determine the size of the slit very precisely. Gregory? Well, then you have uh, the, the larger the slit is relative to a wavelength, the less important diffraction is. The smaller it is, the more important diffraction is. And so certainly if it's smaller than a wavelength, you basically have a point source. So there's nothing uh, too interesting going on. This diffraction pattern has minima at ml lambda over b. If b goes to 0, the minima go to infinity, meaning you have you just stretch this out infinitely large, and you just have uniform intensity. OK, so this example um, is actually useful for calculating something else. In order to understand that, we need to introduce Babinet's principle. Babinet's principle is very powerful um, and can be described pretty simply. It says that if you have if you have diffraction from a slit or from a mask, and then you consider the diffraction from the the inverse of that mask, that you can treat this problem as what would you have if you had diffraction from the sum of the two different apertures. If you add up these two apertures, what you get is just, depending on you look at it, it's either a window or it's a screen. There's no structure here. And then you just get either all the light propagating through or none of it. You don't get any diffraction pattern. And so it says you can add up these diffraction patterns to get this diffraction pattern. And so. These two diffraction patterns, if, this, if the sum of these two obstructions is, is a window, such that the light can just propagate straight through. So the blue area here represents area where light can pass. Okay. This is blocking out the center of the, the, the wave. This is blocking out the uh, outside. And this is blocking out none of the light. The diffraction pattern of this aperture, there is no aperture here, this is just free space. The diffraction pattern is just a delta function. That is to say, if you send the light through a lens, you'll only get a spot on axis. Or if you go infinitely far away, you'll only observe this light when you're on axis. If you're off axis, you won't see light coming towards you. Okay, so if that's the case, the sum of these two diffraction patterns needs to be a delta function. So if we remove the on-axis contribution, then this delta function is a 0. There's no light anywhere here except for on-axis. So the sum of the diffraction pattern for this mask and for this mask, when you're off-axis, has to be 0. So whatever this diffraction pattern is, this one needs to be 180 degrees out of phase. If we talk about the intensity, the intensity doesn't care about 180 degree phase shift. The intensity distribution 
of this diffraction pattern, and this one will be identical. So if you can calculate the diffraction pattern of a slit, you can also calculate the diffraction pattern of a line obstruction, which is the inverse of a slit. Okay, so a hair is illuminated by a plane wave of 500 nanometer light. Okay, so you've got a green laser, you lean over, a piece of hair gets in the way of the laser. This happens all the time. 10 meters away, on the other side of the lab, you see diffraction pattern showing up. The first minima are separated by 5 centimeters. What is the width of the hair? 200 microns. It's the exact same problem as the slit. This time, there's a 200 micron thickness mask obstructing the light instead of passing the light. But the diffraction patterns are the same. So everywhere you have light on, on one scenario, you have dark. Is that it? No, it's the other. Well, at the aperture, Everywhere you have light in one scenario, you have dark in the other case. But in the diffraction pattern, you have the same diffraction pattern. Everywhere, except for on axis. On axis, there's a difference in intensity. Remember when I was describing that, I said um, we had to exclude the on axis point because that's uh, the sum of the two gave a delta function. So on axis, uh, the situation was different. Okay, so essentially, if you have a window, on axis you have a bright spot, and then you have some diffraction pattern around that. If you have a mask, you don't have that bright spot on axis, but you have the same diffraction pattern. Okay, so let's use our result from the diffraction of a slit to describe how the diffraction pattern spreads out. We said that the diffraction pattern is a function of angle. And so evidently, the further you get away from the slit, the wider the diffraction pattern becomes. And if you talk about how it would appear projected onto a plane, that just comes from the fact that the pattern is a function of angle. And the angle can be related to a transverse position divided by a length. Okay, so if the width of the diffraction pattern on a plane is 2L lambda over B. The angular width is just 2 lambda over B. You know the width of this diffraction pattern, which we just calculated in the example, is 2L lambda over B. Its angular width, the angle subtended by it, is this distance divided by this distance. So it's this expression divided by L. So we can describe the angular width of a diffraction pattern as well. OK, and this, this concept of there being an angular width, notice that angular width is 2 lambda over B, we'll use to determine when we're in the near field and when we're in the far field. So in the near field, if you put a screen right here, right next to the slit, what do you think you would see on the screen? 
Let's start with the case where it's literally adjacent to the screen. Yeah, you'd see, I mean, you'd see a rectangular profile for the light that's transmitted, right? which is what you'd expect just based on geometrical optics. But as you get further and further away, then that profile is somehow going to change and eventually become this diffraction pattern. So we'd say in the near field, we just have light going straight through. And in this case, we can neglect the effect of diffraction. In the far field, this diffraction pattern becomes significant. So maybe a useful criteria for figuring out when we're in the far field is when this diffraction pattern becomes bigger than the original window. Okay, so um, here is the width of the diffraction pattern, assuming we're in the far field. And if we set that equal to the width of the slit, B, then we can calculate how far away we need to propagate such that the width of this diffraction pattern is as wide as the original slit. Okay. Beyond that distance, we'll basically be seeing the diffraction pattern. Within that distance, we're essentially going to see the, the rectilinear projection of the slit onto the screen. Okay, so setting this quantity equal to b, we multiply both sides by b, and we have 2 lambda l equals b squared. So that transition length then is b squared over 2 lambda. That's where you transition from the near field to the far field. Um, so this is for a slit in one dimension. But we don't actually use this form very frequently. There's a more general form that uh, is more relevant for most examples because it it allows us to consider objects in two dimensions, which is typically what we have, two-dimensional obstructions. So this term b squared is an area. So we'll replace b squared over 2 with the area of the slit, or the area of the mask or the obstruction. Well, it just kind of gets washed away. This is just a a rule of thumb for describing the two different uh, cases. So the criteria for when you're in the near field versus when you're in the far field is how far away you are from the obstruction in terms of the Rayleigh length. So the Rayleigh length, L sub r, sometimes you'll see it as z sub r if you're measuring your distance from an obstruction in the z-axis, um, is the area of the obstruction divided by lambda squared. The area of the aperture divided by lambda squared. Or if you have a beam, it's the area of the beam. I'm sorry, not lambda. Not lambda squared, lambda. The area of the beam divided by lambda. So this is units of, well, it has dimensions of length, because it's a length squared over a length. Um, and this has some physical meaning, you know, regardless of the shape of this, the object. It doesn't require us to recalculate uh, this type of transition length for every type of object we might deal with. So your screen needs to be further away 
from the mask than Elsabar. You can describe how far away it is in terms of the number of Rayleigh lengths. You get what's called the Rayleigh number. So if your screen is 10 times further than this, it's a Rayleigh number of 10 or a Fresnel number of 10. And so a low Fresnel number, I always forget whether the Fresnel number is defined as this quantity, the inverse. But if the length is small compared to the Rayleigh length, then you have Fresnel diffraction. If it's large compared to the Rayleigh length, you have Fraunhofer diffraction. Okay, and obviously, in between, there's a transition. Um, really, the Fresnel diffraction um, analysis doesn't make any approximations or doesn't make these types of approximations, so it's actually valid at any point. So it's, it's not quite right to say that in a, at a distance much greater than this, you don't have Fresnel diffraction. You just say we have Fresnel diffraction that can be simplified and described as Fraunhofer diffraction. Okay, so let's look at what happens to light that goes through a little window. So here's a slit. It's a two-dimensional slit, meaning a hole. And if we look at the light that propagates through this hole, um, I think we have one micron light, although it's not stated on the slide, uh, and a 50 micron hole. Then um, immediately after the screen, we essentially have a square wave irradiance profile. And as we get further and further away, 0.3 to 1 Rayleigh length, we start to see ripple on the top of the square wave and eventually um, some dramatic distortion that makes us not look like a square wave at all. And then as we get further and further away until we're finally well beyond the Rayleigh length, um, we see just the far field diffraction pattern. So the evolution of the diffraction pattern from a rectilinear reproduction of the obstruction to its far field diffraction pattern goes through these ripples along the way. Um, okay, let's take like a two minute break and then uh, we'll describe diffraction of Gaussian beams. Yeah. start back up. Um, the book doesn't go into a lot of detail, at least not in chapter 11, about Gaussian beams, which is too bad because most of the optics that you're going to deal with uh, likely involve laser beams, um, not plane waves coming from point sources infinitely far away. So laser beams can be described in terms of Gaussian modes. 
It means instead of describing different plane waves that make up a beam, we can describe different, um, different Gaussian functions. This is a Gaussian function right here, either called Laguerre Gaussian or Hermite Gaussian, depending on whether we're using Cartesian or cylindrical coordinates, um, that can be added up to describe some arbitrary function. And the lowest order Gaussian function is one that looks like this. What that means is um, if you have a laser beam that is a very high quality beam, this is what its spatial profile will look like. So a Gaussian function is one that looks like e to the minus some quantity squared. It's a bell curve, probably the context you've seen that most frequently in. And so if we are talking about a laser beam measured at our uh, diffraction plane, then our coordinate that we're using was y prime. So here I'm plotting the intensity or the electric field of the laser beam. The amplitude of the electric field is a function of y prime. So this direction is y prime. And so we can normalize that coordinate relative to some length scale to describe the width of that Gaussian beam. So we'll call that, uh, that scaling parameter w. And so what w physically represents is the radius of this Gaussian beam where the amplitude has fallen from its peak value to 1 over e. And so when y prime is equal to plus or minus w, and this term in parentheses is plus or minus 1, we square, we get 1, and the amplitude is e to the minus 1. Right? When y prime is equal to 0, e to the 0 is 1. Okay? So this is a normalized electric field profile. It has a peak of 1. I could multiply it by some constant e naught. I guess I've kind of mixed up my descriptions, my mathematical description of my picture, but my picture has it normalized such that the maximum is at E naught. And in terms of the field, if we go one, we call it one Gaussian beam width away from zero, the field will have dropped to one over E of its maximum. And this Gaussian profile for a laser beam is called the TEM00 mode. And I'm not going to get into the uh, shape and the description of higher order modes, something that you'll uh, probably discuss in 168 if you take the lasers class. But um, a couple things about this width. One is that this width allows us some method to describe how wide this laser beam is. Um, because it's a smooth function, it's not easy, it's not straightforward to describe its width. It's a little bit like trying to measure the diameter of a cotton ball using calipers. Right? You squeeze the calipers down on it, when do you stop squeezing? You try to measure the width, where do you measure it with respect to? So this de describes some criteria for measuring the width. You could also measure the full width half max. This width is not the same as the full width half max, but they're both a valid measure of the width as long as you understand um, 
what this parameter means. And one of the things that makes this parameter particularly useful to describe it this way is that the power contained in a beam that has this lowest order Gaussian profile is exactly the same as the power that would be contained in a top hat beam, one that looks like this, that has the same radial width. Okay, so you can think of a, a beam that's a cylindrical beam that has a cylinder radius w and a uniform irradiance across that cylinder and no irradiance outside of that cylinder. And the power in that beam is exactly the same as you'd have in a Gaussian that has this smooth distribution. Okay, so that relationship is going to be important later on. Okay, so let's look at our calculation of the Fraunhofer diffraction pattern for a Gaussian beam. And now I'm considering the Gaussian beam in place of that uniformly illuminated slit. I no longer have a slit. So in the case of a plane wave, I said if there was no slit there, what did the diffraction pattern look like? Yeah, it's just a plane wave in, plane wave out. Right? And so if you think about it in terms of the angle, if the incident plane wave has an angle of 0, the, the output plane wave will also have an angle of 0. So as a function of angle, we have a delta function for the diffraction pattern. There's only, you only see intensity if you look at an angle of 0 back at that plane wave. Now, in the case of a Gaussian beam with no diffraction, with no, uh, no aperture here, you might be led to believe that we have a, whatever we have coming in is the same thing that we have coming out. Okay, but think about it this way. If we had a plane wave coming in, and we had an aperture that wasn't just a hard-edged aperture, but was some sort of uh, soft filter, some sort of uh, variable transmissive window that transmitted all the light on axis and then had an exponentially decreasing transmission off axis, then a plane wave in would produce a Gaussian output. right? And in that case, we do have a window, and we would expect there might be some diffraction from it. And so we can do the same type of analysis that we did for the plane wave, which is pick a point over here, integrate the electric field contribution at that point from every Huygens source in this uh, aperture plane. So let's do that. And it doesn't matter whether we have a plane wave coming in to a filter that produces this, or we have just a Gaussian beam coming in. The point is, we have this electric field distribution, and the phase fronts will assume are planar, so that the electric field can be described entirely in terms of a Gaussian amplitude, and then constant phase across this plane. Okay, and again, that's what you have if you have a collimated laser beam in the lowest order mode. So the analysis is very similar. Certainly the geometry is the same where we've got this isosceles triangle, we're far away, so this angle is small, and this additional path length 
that this ray has to travel we call delta r, and delta r is y prime sine theta. So the first couple steps are identical. The only difference now is that our amplitude of the electric field of the source is no longer just a constant, but it's a function of y prime. That function of y prime is e to the minus y prime over w squared. And so before, when this amplitude stayed on the outside of the integral, now because it's a function of y prime, we need to bring it on the inside of the integral. And before, we only had to integrate over the slit from minus b over 2 to plus b over 2. Whereas here, this electric field distribution extends to infinity. So we have to integrate from minus infinity to plus infinity. That's a w, not an omega. That A should be a W. Yeah, sorry. Okay, so now our integral is a little more complicated. Before it was just looked like e to the minus ax dx. But now there's an additional term which looks like x squared. Okay, so to evaluate that integral, we need to do a little bit of uh, manipulation. So the first step is to complete the square. We have something that looks like y prime squared plus y prime. So if we added another constant term here, if we chose that term correctly, we could write this as y prime plus, plus some constant all squared. Okay, so we're going to add a constant term that allows us to do that. And then we have to subtract that same term in order for there to be no net change to this argument. Okay, so what we want is that constant times y prime over w to be one half of this cross term. Okay, so the so if we use a w squared over four k squared sine squared theta, so we add that and then we subtract it. Right, we can take the the term that we subtract, we can factor it out as its own exponential. And then the argument of this exponential, we can, this is some quantity squared. We can write it as that quantity squared. That quantity is y prime over w minus i w over 2 k sine theta. So if I look at the argument of this exponential and I square it, y prime over w squared is this first term minus i w over 2 k sine theta squared is this term, w squared over 4 k squared sine squared theta. And then I get 2 times this cross term. So I get 2 times y prime over w, w over 2 k sine theta. And that's this cross term here. Right, so I've just completed the square. This term over here, which I had to add when I completed the square so that I wasn't changing the expression, doesn't depend on y prime. So I bring it outside the integral. And then I have a slightly simplified integral in that I have some quantity squared. And that quantity I'll call u, just make a substitution, change of variables. Then du is just dy prime over w. And so I can change variables here and write this as e to the minus u squared du prime. And when I substitute in 
dy prime is du times w. I get a factor of w out there. I also have to change the limits of integration. I have to ensure that uh, I've done that properly. So at y prime equals minus infinity, u is equal to minus infinity. And at y prime equals plus infinity, u is plus infinity. So I still integrate from minus infinity to plus infinity. That's du, yeah, sorry. OK, so this is a definite integral um, that you can look up in a table. So we'll use the result that e to the minus x squared dx is equal to the square root of pi. Um, I think that was a hint in the homework, too, right? You had a similar expression, right? So a similar method of, of solution where we complete the square and then we use this definite integral. Okay, so this term here is going to be square root of pi, and then we're going to have all this stuff in the front. Okay, so that's what we have here, and that is the electric field at point P due to my Gaussian beam located at my uh, aperture. If I want to describe the irradiance instead of the electric field, I can square this. I can say the irradiance at P is equal to the irradiance at the, so if E0 is the amplitude of the electric field on axis at the aperture, then I0 is the irradiance on axis at the aperture. And I square all the other terms, so squaring the, an exponent just means multiplying its argument by 2, so that 1 fourth becomes a 1 half. Square root of pi becomes pi. W becomes W squared. And now I can relate pi W squared to the area of that top hat beam that I said has the same total power as the Gaussian beam. That's W. And this is a cylindrical beam. Its area is pi omega squared. And if its peak irradiance is I0, then the power in that cylindrical beam is its irradiance times its area, or I0 times pi omega squared, or pi w squared. So I0 times pi w squared. This is just the power in the Gaussian beam. So I'll replace that with P to get a slightly simpler expression. So we'll see a couple things. Uh, the first is the irradiance is falling off as a function of r squared. Okay, so I said I've got a collimated laser beam. So the term collimated and the term beam both suggest it's propagating without spreading. Right, or we may, that may be what comes to our mind when we think of those terms. But what we see here is that the irradiance is actually decreasing the further you get away. So that must mean it's spreading out in order for the total, I mean, the power is to go somewhere. So if not as much of it's staying on axis, it must be spreading out. And you can see that here in that the width now of this beam, or the, the angular width um, is a function of the, so, the spatial width in the uh, aperture plane. 
Okay, so um, if we calculate the divergence angle, so how much this beam is spreading, it's the angle at which this irradiance decreases to e to the minus 1. I guess it's irradiance that's e to the minus 2. The field would decrease to e to the minus 1. The irradiance would decrease to e to the minus 2. Um, that tells us how large the waste is as, as it propagates. And if it's, if it's a function of angle, that means the further away you get, the larger the width is getting. So we have spreading. Okay, so we'll set this argument equal to minus 2. And we'll again make the assumption that sine theta is approximately equal to theta. And we'll solve for theta. Remember, this is w not omega. And k is 2 pi over lambda. So the 4 is cancel. So theta is lambda over pi w. This is what we call the far field divergence angle. Because the beam is spreading out with this angular spread. So this is how far from the optical axis to the point that's one beam radius away, one Gaussian radius away. So that would be like the, the, the half angle of the spread. The full angle would be twice this quantity. Um, so the beam is spreading out, but it's still a Gaussian. You can see that this distribution is still a Gaussian. It's e to the sum quantity squared. So the shape of the beam doesn't change. It's just its transverse profile. So another way of saying that is the Fourier transform of a Gaussian is a Gaussian. And what we have is uh, our aperture. The Fourier transform of the aperture is, is in fact, the far field diffraction pattern. Um, OK, so we'll pick up here, do an example next time, um, and discuss more about Gaussian beams, two slits, and diffraction. No,